Standardised testing dampens creativity and entrepreneurship and creates a culture that values a homogenised student body. And as such, it is counterproductive to creating a diverse workforce in which economies can thrive. Well, welcome everyone to a special Modern Learners podcast event. Today, we are releasing the audio version of our popular ebook, The Seven Assessment Strategies for Schools of Modern Learning. I'm Will Richardson, co-founder of Modern Learners, and what follows is the first third of the ebook being read by the other co-founder of Modern Learners, Bruce Dixon, who's also the author of the book itself. Now, to get the entire audio version of the Seven Assessment Strategies ebook, just head on over to modernlearners.com slash seven strategies, the number seven strategies, where you can download the whole file and listen away. And real fast, if you want to expand your assessment horizons even more, check out our first Modern Learners course titled Reimagining Assessment. It's an in-depth look at the hows and whys of modern assessment, complete with 34 separate lessons and access to our Modern Learners community. You can get all the details at modernlearners.com assessment. As always, we hope you're enjoying our efforts here at Modern Learners to push the conversation around changing the experience of school for every student. If you have thoughts, ideas, comments, questions, or just want to get in touch, let me know at will at modernlearners.com. But for now, enjoy this snip from the seven assessment strategies for schools of modern learning. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Seven Strategies for Schools of Modern Learning, a white paper from Modern Learners, looking at ways in which we can reimagine and rethink assessment in the modern world. We start with a quote from Dennis Litke. What if we assess students' learning by measuring whether it made them want to learn more? How does that sound? Are we finally seeing the beginning of the end of testing as we know it? For too long, we've tolerated and sadly by our practice, perpetuated the populist mythology that testing as we know it today supports learning. That is not only dishonest, it's also deceitful because it ignores the irreparable harm being done to learners in schools every day. If there's a serious lack of reasonable evidence of any significant long-term benefits to high, support high-stakes tests, standardised or norm-rested testing with, that we have today, then isn't it time this absurd attack on learning came to an end? As Susan Engel says, almost no one has publicly questioned a fundamental assumption that the tests measure something meaningful or predict something significant beyond themselves. Engel says, I've reviewed more than 300 studies of K-12 academic tests and what I've discovered is startling. Most tests used to evaluate students, teachers and school districts predict almost nothing except the likelihood of achieving similar scores on subsequent tests. It's time that we took the time to not only expose the deception that has sustained this insidious virus in our schools, that we put in place strategies to finally end the deceit of standardised testing and the harm it inflicts on both teachers and students. If this indeed is the beginning of the end, then we need strategies for train, change. 
strategies that will allow schools to make the transition to assessment that matters most. Assessment that supports learning. To do this, we're taking a deeper look at the fifth principle that was referenced in our earlier 10 Principles for Schools of Modern Learning white paper, which simply says, modern schools embrace and emphasize real world applications and presentations to real audiences as assessment for learning. In many countries, in many schools, educators today feel they're drowning in an ocean of accountability. For not only has learning been attacked, but the testing cancer has spread to attack both teachers and schools. Taken logically and with all the evidence available, it's hard to believe that a system that serves students so poorly could then in any way be considered appropriate to measure teacher evaluations and tenure decisions, let alone schools. To then try and legitimise the whole process by publishing results in league tables is delusional. To use student performance as a proxy measure for school quality and rely on standardised measures for that purpose is simply absurd. However, this paper is not just about calling out the harm and abuse that this test-based accountability movement has caused millions of students. Rather, it is about taking a rational approach to ending it and importantly, allowing the educational professions in our schools to better support their students' learning. Let's look first at the dubious roots of testing. Well, you can blame the Prussians or the Russians or any of the many turning points in history, but the common thread that connects the disparate and disconnected roots of testing is that it was never an intention to support learning. These tests were developed for militaristic efficiencies, intelligent assessment and measurement, racial profiling and competitive ranking. While time might heal the best or worst of intent, when combined with poorly informed assumptions about learning, the door is left wide open for commercial opportunism. As founder of the first State Board of Education in the US, Horace Mann played a major role in establishing the traditional military factory school model. His fascination for the Prussian Army's disciplined and efficient hierarchical structure which gave them the ability to turn out standardised, predictable and reliable soldiers, suggested to him that likewise students should be grouped by age and pre-tested ability. It was a model that had obvious appeal for factory work and the expanding manufacturing economy of the 20th century. At the same time, psychometricians were eager to embrace their newfound status, expanding the measurement of IQ to include everything from the recruitment of World War I soldiers and the determination of their mental aptitude to be officers to the more nefarious use of those same tests for racial profiling. As Anna Kamenetz outlines in her book, The Test, Why Our Schools Are Obsessed With Standardised Testing, But You Don't Have To Be, one of the leading voices in the early 19th century was Lewis Terman, the chair of psychology at Stanford University, who adapted the work of Alfred Binet to create the Stanford Binet Intelligent Test. Terman was a geneticist, an advocate of forced sterilization for, as he said, the feeble-minded, who argued that the low Binet scores of Negroes, Spanish Indians and Mexicans were racial characteristics. Despite this infamous racist advocacy, 
The turning point for mass testing in schools came when Terman proposed that a properly scientific and calibrated test could be smarter than a teacher, providing a more reliable and more enlightening estimate of a child's intelligence than most teachers can offer after a year of daily contact in the schoolroom. Who said big data was a new idea? A quick reflection on the beliefs held about learning at that time reveal how such a revolutionary idea could gain traction and become accepted practice. This was a time when most people believed learning only occurred when a person was taught, that students learned from predefined knowledge that was delivered according to a preset curriculum that was dependent on rewards, punishment and memorization with controls derivative of factory or military models. It's what respected writer and educator Frank Smith called the official theory of learning. In contrast, we see that learning is natural, self-directed, social, continuous, inquiry-based, often serendipitous and without boundaries. Smith called this the classic view. As you might expect, the official theory was strongly endorsed by prominent experimental psychologists at that time who were seeking to make education their proprietorial preserve. In doing so, they advocated learning as a science which was about measurement, about being quantifiable and about control, which in turn, of course, appealed to policymakers and politicians. So before long, intelligent tests were being used as a proxy measurement of learning and mass testing had found its way into school. As Kamenetz outlines in the test, she said, right away, standardised intelligent tests became high stakes for individuals. Binet and Terman's tests were meant to determine how educational resources were used, who is placed into a slow class and who into a gifted class, who becomes an engineer and who a car mechanic, who goes to college and who gets invited to leave school. So it didn't take long to convince teachers, learners, parents that the most important things about education were scores and grades. So when the Russians landed Sputnik in 1957, American schools were the low-hanging fruit of blame, with many other Western countries blaming their own schools as well. School accountability became front-page news, and despite the flawed premises on which high-stakes testing had been established, once again, they moved to centre stage. The nation at risk, the imperative for educational reform, of course, followed in 1983 in the US and the attack on education by the Thatcher government around the same time in the UK, by which time accountability had become the catch cry for politicians and policymakers looking for quick answers and votes. As Edu Peter Edutobia reported, in 1989, Bush convened his education summit at the University of Virginia. Astonishingly, no teachers, professional educators, cognitive scientists or learning experts were invited. The group that met to shape the future of American education consisted entirely of state governors. Education was too important, it seemed, to leave to educators. Not to be outdone around the same time, The Guardian reported that Prime Minister Thatcher oversaw a, prof oversaw a profound change in the ecology of education. Once ministers largely accepted that experts, school teachers and their unions, university lecturers, teacher trainers, local education authority officers, knew best and could be trusted to act. 
However, from the mid-1980s, ministers behaved as though education were an ailing, near-bankrupt industry. And their role, therefore, was to challenge, even denigrate the views of these insiders, to demand value for money, to impose performance management, to root out endemic failure, and to insist on what they saw as customer satisfaction. The result was an increasing lack of trust for the educational professionals and a call for increased external accountability measures. The seeds were well and truly sown for test-driven solutions. Time then to move on to the accountability vacuum. As the demands on schooling have increased dramatically over the past 40 or so years, the importance of universal education has become a foundation of growing economies across the globe. And with that, an increased focus on the quality of their education. This, of course, had been rare in previous generations when high school completion meant success and an undergraduate degree a triumph. But as reasonable as it was to expect such scrutiny, the education sector appeared poorly prepared to respond. At times, educators were defensive that anyone would challenge their practices and accordingly often left the debate to their industrial leadership, whose advocacy was first and foremost about conditions and pay. The result was an accountability vacuum. Once a year, parent-teacher conferences and annual grade reports ultimately didn't cut the mustard for many parents who were becoming even more focused on their child's education. When the new millennium came around, education was grabbing a much larger share of both government's budgets and parents' pockets and time, and there had been little effort by educational leaders to address the increased focus and concerns of the broader community. This then left the door open for commercial opportunism. Once the Pandora's box of alignment between textbook, tutoring, testing and remediation companies was opened, all hell broke loose and the commercial opportunities exploded. Add to that online testing and the testing industry became a lobbying master force. Along the way, millions were squandered as Jonathan Key outlines in his book, Class Clowns. But if the US testing market alone is worth $1.4 billion, then what size market does this coalition of standardized test fundamentalists have access to worldwide? While educators were still trying to melt, mount a stronger public voice, the explosive growth in testing over the past two decades has largely been underwritten by lobbyists representing the testing, textbook and tutoring industries. So now we understand the false premises on which this delusion was based. And importantly, who is currently investing, vested in sustaining its growth today? Let's now look at what it is meant for the lead players, our learners, and how we can address the accountability vacuum with alternatives that genuinely support learning. The abused learner and the age of absurdity. As Sharon Nichols and David Berliner said in their book, Collateral Damage, How High Stakes Testing Corrupts America's School, the use of high stakes tests to measure student achievement is enormously harmful. There is absolutely no need for new research on high stakes testing. There is already sufficient evidence to declare that high stakes testing does not work, already exists. There is sufficient evidence to declare that. We think that any fair-minded person, were they impaneled in a jury, could see that high-stakes testing does not work. 
and they're based on our findings, we're compelled to ask for a moratorium on programs of high-stakes testing. The biggest challenge facing educational leaders who want to address the abuse these tests cause learners today is the time it has taken for a comprehensive response. Since the turn of the century, international benchmarking such as TIMS and PISA offered a proxy endorsement to the absurdity of No Child Left Behind testing, the regime that was introduced into US schools in 2002. The effects of this spread like a plague through the Western world. One prominent example occurred in 2007, when newly elected Australian Education Minister, Julia Gillard, an ex-lawyer, proposed a tough education revolution for the country. At that time, Gillard travelled to the US where she listened to a glowing description of how New York City schools were performing from the then Chancellor, Joel Klein, also an ex-lawyer, at a cocktail party in New York. He discussed the use of hard data for his assessment as his modus operandi for improved test scores. On return, naturally, Gillard introduced the national testing regime called NAPLAN, which still torments schools across Australia today. Despite all this poorly informed intervention in education by politicians, lobbyists and ex-lawyers, there's been an ongoing guerrilla war raging against the harm done by high-stakes standardised or norm reference tests. This has been led by such prominent minds as Russell Ackoff, Elfie Cohn, Seymour Saracen, Frank Smith and Deborah Meyer. In her most recent book, Beyond Testing, Meyer suggests that these tests have the effect of narrowing the curriculum and potential for student growth in areas not tested. Give students the idea that there's only one right answer, provide scientific justification for race and class inequalities and take away key decisions from school communities, teachers and students. Anya Commence further summarised the case in her recent book, The Test, with her 10 arguments against high-stakes standardised tests in math and reading. Throughout the book, Anya offers convincing examples to put support each of her points against testing. In summary, number one, we're testing the wrong things. Number two, tests waste time and money. Number three, Tests make, are making students hate school and turning parents into preppers. Number four, they're making teachers hate teaching. Number five, tests, the high stakes tests penalise diversity. Number six, they cause teaching to the test. Number seven, the high stakes tests tempt cheating. Number eight, high stakes tests are gained by states until they become meaningless. Number nine, they're full of errors. And number 10, the next generation of tests will make things even worse. Standardised testing dampens creativity and entrepreneurship and creates a culture that values a homogenised student body. And as such, it is counterproductive to creating a diverse workforce in which economies can thrive. They simply do not test skills that matter for innovation and success, such as working with people of other cultures or thinking with complexity about global challenges. They, in fact, bear little or no relationship to what is happening in the world today. Daniel Koretz, who's the Professor of Education at Harvard Graduate School of Education, summarised it well in his just-released book, The Testing Charade, pretending to make schools better, as he says. Despite those good intentions, test-based accountability has failed was predestined to fail because it was based in good measure on a number of unrealistic assumptions. 
and it's not only hindsight that allows me to say this, warning flags about some of these assumptions were hoisted decades ago. Finally, a recent RAND Corporation study found that on current state tests, only about 2% of math items and 20% of English language arts items tap higher order skills. And if all that isn't enough, paradoxically, one of the hidden curses of standardised tests is the insidious manner in which it actually penalises diversity. By statistical definition, it ignores the edges, which include all those students who have cultural, geographic, physical or intellectual disadvantage. Far from helping to close the gap, the use of standardised tests has in fact found to be the most damaging for low income and minority students. This really is all quite absurd. Let's talk about the urgency for change. We turn to Russell Ackoff, who puts the case bluntly. The essential purpose of an educational system is to provide an environment that allows children to develop into successful adults. Replacing that with an educational system that forces children to perform well in a specific set of exams is nothing less than the end of schooling as a useful tool for society. Peter Drucker said there's a difference between doing things right and doing the right thing. Doing the right thing is wisdom and effectiveness. Doing things right is efficiency. The curious thing is the righter you do the wrong thing, the wronger you become. If you're doing the wrong thing and you make a mistake and correct it, you become wronger. So it's better to do the right thing wrong than the wrong thing right. Take a simple example, grading. The issue is surely not how, but why. As Welby Ings from New Zealand explains. We change by changing the language. Scaled percentages are replaced by raw marks, which are replaced by grades that are replaced by levels of merit. But the fundamental premise remains the same. We preoccupy ourselves with measuring, measuring the performance of learning. As a consequence, we elevate what can be made explicit and what can be narrated, and somewhere in there we miss the point that learning is not a performance, it is a process. So don't forget, if you want the last 50 minutes or so of this audio version of our Seven Assessment Strategies for Schools of Modern Learning ebook, just visit modernlearners.com slash seven strategies, that's the number seven strategies, to download the entire file. And don't forget to check out our Reimagining Assessment course if you really want to do a deep dive at modernlearners.com slash assessment. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and we'll see you again on another episode of the Modern Learners Podcast.